Hey, everybody, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We are a week post Device Talks West. What a fantastic time. Thank you to everyone who was part of that. Thank you to our speakers, our sponsors, our attendees. Uh, We grew the event by 50%. I think we grew the energy by 300%. And uh, such a great, great time. And really looking forward to building off of that success and bringing you an excellent Device Talks Boston, which is happening May 1st and 2nd. Already working on that agenda. If you have any thoughts uh, on who you'd like to see there, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, today's episode, we'll have Danielle Kirsch, our senior editor from Mass Device. She's also head, She also heads up the Women in MedTech, Medical Design and Outsourcing issue. We'll talk about the issue, but also uh, some of the news this week surrounding uh, women leaders in MedTech. And we'll have a very cool quote from or, or, or cool track from Fred Kersravi of Imperative Care, uh, a statement he made at Device Talks West. And then I'm happy to have uh, the CEO of Kaijin, Terry Bernard, on as our guest. Uh, really brought me back to some times that I, I guess, had chosen to forget. But there are some lessons that we should be uh, remembering, and uh, we'll, we'll learn about that in the interview. So uh, other than that, I want to invite you to our uh, upcoming Device Talks Tuesday. It's happening on Halloween, Ooh, October 31st, Tuesday at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern. It's brought to you by our great friends at Velocity. The title is Evaluating New Product Concepts with Manufacturing in Mind. Got a great panel for you. And uh, go to devicetalks.com for more information. All right. Let's get this podcast cranked up to 11. Let's go. All right. You ready for this? Ready. Well, Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. Happy fall. Happy falls. Just a week. Well, we saw you just a week ago. I was dropping you off at the uh, San Francisco airport for your red eye back home. Did you settle in nicely yeah. back home? Did you make crepes with your daughter or what? I I did. Yeah, that was uh, you know that was uh, my uh, five year old daughter. Like was excited for me to to get in and make crepes as soon as I got home. So I was like, <laughs> that was very popular. I was definitely uh, our, our daughter's gone very good at cracking eggs. So she's she can she can really crack those eggs into the to the batter bowl so that's good, good well times. i i still have a problem with that so uh i'm constantly fishing out a shell so good for her good for her yeah, next time you're in minneapolis i could get i could get stella to teach you so good. <laughs> that'd, that'd, be, that'd be fantastic all right, all right. <laughs> I, I stayed through the weekend and uh attended tct innovation forum on monday which was was really great i'm still working on an article from uh, a great keynote panel with uh dr robert Califf, the fda commissioner with mike mahoney uh lisa Earnhardt. Uh, and um, Stephen Hemsley from United talking about sort of where we are in a, the state of healthcare um, in terms of availability of medical, medical med tech innovation. I'm, I'm, I haven't had time to write it up, and I'm, it's killing me. But it was just great job by by TCT by the Fogarty Institute and CRF for putting together that uh, that med tech innovation. It was really That's really fantastic. worth staying for. So uh, the news of the week, I think, the big news of the week. Uh, was Ashley McAvoy's announcement that she was leaving J and J MedTech, yeah. and uh, coincides uh, with our plans to have Daniel Kirsch, senior editor of Mass Device, on this podcast to talk Woo! about 
our women in medtech issue for metal design outsourcing. Danielle is in the house. (laughs) Welcome, Danielle. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for having me. I try not to use in the house or across the pond. I don't know. I just both of those. Oh, yeah. They seem seem trite, but but, yeah, you do it. it. You make it work for me. In the house, you know. We're pleased to have Danielle here. <laughs> we certainly are. <laughs> yeah, you know, across the ponds, usually like somebody spent too much time in Britain and they, they, you know, you don't, you don't just say like, I was over in, you know, the United Kingdom. You're like, oh, I was across the pond. It's like, oh, now you're just trying to, you try know, too rub hard. it in. Absolutely rub it in that you're, yeah. Yeah. you're just trying too hard. You know? Yeah. Anyway, Danielle, you, I'm sure you missed this nonsense, but uh, it's yes. great, great to have you back. How, how uh, let's talk a bit about the issue first and then we can kind of pick apart. Uh, the news of the week, but uh, how did this issue of uh, women in medtech in medical design and outsourcing, a lot of words there for me to use, uh, how did that all shape up? It is a really good issue. You know, I might be biased because it's it's my brainchild, but Hmm. we had a lot of good feature stories this year. Who, Miriam Kerr, Intuitive Surgical's chief medical officer is on the cover. I think our designer, Matt Claney, did a really good job of just really designing that. And she also gave us a really good story about how Intuitive uses data to innovate. So um, that's online, the issue's online, but we have a lot of other good things within the magazine. That's great. Now, how would you just, just define the articles you write? Because I think it's important to note that you really do focus on the work that's being done in medtech rather than the the person you're talking to. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. It's... My idea for women in medtech is I want to talk about the innovation that just happens to be led by women. I don't necessarily want to say, you know, a woman is leading this through this or anything like that. So it's really about how, you know, um, Penumbra is using VR for therapy or Intuitive uses data or Biosense Webster is expanding access to AFib care, things like that. It's really exciting, yeah, because it's yeah, it's it's that's one of the things I especially love about this this annual issue of medical design outsourcing is that it you know it's it's like just highlighting all this really cool stuff that is going on across medtech and it just just happens that you know they're they're women executives who are like in charge of it and that that's just really exciting and gosh Danielle how many years have we been doing this now This is the sixth edition of Women in Medtech. It's fantastic. It just gets better every year. So uh, let's let's talk about the the different uh, components of the issue, uh, and I want to save this this the the sort of analysis part you, you do last. You you've rebranded one feature of of the issue, right? To to sort of reorient it, reorient its focus. Yes. So in the past, I had a startup section where I just listed some of the younger companies that were still up and coming, but I really wanted to change it to emerging leaders to highlight some of the innovations from the smaller medtech companies, ranging from those that have a prototype to others that are at a commercial stage and really anything in between. So we had a lot of interesting companies that we could cover, but we covered really two emerging leaders in this issue. Yeah, I thought the emerging leaders uh, angle was was really uh, was really good. And I mean, of those leaders that you were covering, I mean, what 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 do you think was the most exciting? There was one feature from Ananya Health, who is developing a battery powered cryoablation device that wow. works at the point of care in emerging markets. And 
you can definitely see more about that in the story that I wrote, but the CEO was telling me how this is going to address the issue of follow-up care in cervical cancer diagnostics in some of the emerging markets or places where people have to travel two, three hours just to get to a clinic for that diagnostic and treatment. So it combines it all into one system for ease of access. That's great. Let me, let's me let talk about the, the, uh, the statistics that you're, you've been tracking in uh, women represented at senior levels in, in medtech, the positions that they're holding. I know this is something that you've been following for a few years and our industry constantly says we need to do better. We are doing better. And I think it's always great to have these numbers just to sort of, sort of hold us accountable. Uh, what was the, the – please, if you would – uh, describe the number you're looking at and then tell us what is what is that number at this year and how does it compare to last year? Yeah, so I've been doing this analysis since 2019 and it's been award-winning for the last two years, so I'm going for a three-peat with this Woo-hoo! one. Yeah, um, woo! <laughs> but last year, um, well, so basically the analysis is of the largest medical device companies and how many of the executives in their top leadership positions are women. So this year, that number was 23.6%. And last year, that number was 23%. So Mm. the number is taking up slowly now versus in 2021, when the number went up drastically. And Holly Scott at the Mullings Group gave me some really good insights about why that is. And Jill Canada also had some really good comments about how we can further expand women leadership within the industry. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to give all of their, <laughs> their insights on the podcast, but you can definitely go check it out on the article. And also within that article, there are some historical graphs that will show just how far the industry has come. I also do an analysis of C-suite composition. So I do an entire look at the medtech industry to find out what percentage of executives within the industry are women. And then I break it down by company, which companies have the largest composition, which just means, you know, the number of women in leadership roles as a share of the total number of executives within the certain company. One thing I've especially liked about this report is, I mean, because basically what you're doing is you're going to the leadership pages that these companies have online. You're just, I mean, that, that's in a nutshell what it is. You're going to those pages, like who, what executives do they have listed as their top leadership on those web pages? And, you know, because you do that, I mean, we've had companies that have added women executives to those pages after you've done that report because, you know, they've, it's, uh, they, they've realized like, oh, we have, we're not, like listing any women executives that are a company as a top leader. So, I mean, you're, you're, you've actually helped highlight the role that some women executives are playing in some of these companies, which is just fantastic. Yeah, that is great. And Jill Canada is the vice president of corporate and enterprise sales at Avail Med Systems. I mean, she was at Device Talks West. Avail Med Systems, uh, another great company that's, uh, that's elevating women to, uh, to senior positions at the company. You know, and fortunately, I mean, you know, I mean, okay, so right now, yeah, it's grown, but we still, it's still like less than a quarter of the executives on those leadership pages. Or and uh, it also came up. This issue came up last week at Device Talks West. We had Fred Krasavi of Imperative Care as a, as a keynote, and uh, we'll play this this quote or this clip from his comment where 
basically he said that for medtech to get to where it needs to be in terms of patient care, more women need to be in, in senior positions. I opened this up and we opened up the day kind of again, there seems to be a, a, a different element of this conversation in med tech where people are, I think, I think we've always, again, said we're patient-centric, but I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm taking our conversation and projecting it onto others, but do you, do you feel like there's some, some kind of change happening in how med tech companies will be formed in the future um, with, again, with more patient engagement? Uh, certainly, we're talking more about health equity. We're talking about getting devices to the people who need it the most. I, I think that's all fantastic that we're having those conversations, but are we going to see talk turn into to action and evolution of this industry? I'm going to say something. I, I don't mean to be kind of sexist or raise the ire of half of the population here. Um, but I really do think that for medicine to shift into treating the patients as opposed to treating the disease, we need more women in uh, medicine we need more women in leadership in companies that are treating technologies for medicine. Um, I'm not saying 100%, no. but I think we, we're woefully behind. Um, and, and I believe that women in medicine and women in leadership in these companies will shift, the, uh, will shift medicine to focusing on the patient as opposed to the disease. We're guys, we're, we're all kind of hammer and nail people. <laughs> and as a follow-up to that, I posted that clip on, on LinkedIn. Uh, Ariel Klein-Sutton, who's Executive Vice President and GM of Stroke at Imperative Care, posted on LinkedIn, shared my post, and, and said that she's grateful to work with a leader who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. 40% of our executive team and a third of our board members at Imperative Care are women. So it's great, again, to see companies out there making statements that matter, but also following up with actions that, that really have an impact. So totally. I definitely agree because as we explore stories of women leaders in this magazine and every other magazine that we've done, it really becomes clear that diversity is not merely a matter of representation, but a catalyst for innovation mm -hmm. because diverse yeah. teams bring diverse perspectives and experiences to the table to allow companies to develop products that cater to the diverse needs of the global patient population. So there's a lot of need for this representation at that level. That's a great point. And it's true. Yeah. And while, while we focus on on leaders and and that's sort of the, the, the highest profile uh, area we can look at, I think it is essential also to look at the engineering ranks and, and just the, the workforce of med tech. Um, and I don't have anything to compare apples to oranges, but, uh, I've anecdotally heard that it's improving, um, you know, but, but there's still, you know, even in engineering in the med tech space, there's still a, a way, way to go. Yeah. Fair point. Oh, you know, I, at this, unfortunately this week, um, you know, we had, uh, Ashley McAvoy, the, uh, the, the chair of Johnson and Johnson med tech, you know, saying that she was, uh, going to be resigning from, Johnson and Johnson. So that's that's one fewer top executive in the medical device business who's who is a who is a woman. Um, I mean, gosh, Danielle, like with our you know big one hundred list of companies, you know the one hundred largest medical device companies in the world with with McAvoy leaving. I mean, how many of those one hundred companies then at this point will have a, a woman at the top of the business? Well. 
of the 100 medical device companies that we track, seven women held CEO roles that I found. And um, that was up one from last year. Those companies are Accuray, Ambu, Bibron, Melsung, and Bibron, Bibron, Melsung, and Barco, Fresenius Medical Care, G and Hearing, and Paul Hartman. So they're they're certainly on the list, but I'm not sure where they would fall on the list. I'm guessing some would be upper or lower. I mean, I think remaining we would have Elise Ehrenhardt, who I mentioned earlier at Abbott. She's the head yeah. of MedTech there. Um, we lost, I mean, Chasey Petrovic stepped down last year. Uh, she was obviously a, 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 the CEO of Insulet, which is one of the larger companies. And I know, Danielle, I think this year you, in, in the big 100, you included the 101 to 105 list, which I thought was fascinating. And on that list, you had Leslie Trigg of Outset Medical. You had Erica Rogers of Silk Road. So uh, hopefully those companies will find their way back to the big 100 and help those lists. But all in all, I, I, I think losing uh, Ashley McAvoy, who uh, I think we should say temporary losing. I think everyone expects her to be landing a senior role again soon somewhere uh, of her choosing because she's a, a extremely uh, qualified and talented CEO. Yeah. Uh, but losing her at this time, uh, it's a bit of a ding, I think. I, t- I, I see it that way. And the, and the fact, too, that she was uh, chair of uh, Avamed's board, the first woman to be chair, and she's stepping down from that role as well for now. Yeah, that's a great point. Danielle, what, yeah. was your, how, what were your feelings this week when you heard? Um, I felt shocked yeah. for the most part. <laughs> it wasn't really expected, but there was there – was, uh, yeah, I, I share the same sentiment. She was the CEO of the second largest medical device company in the world, so – it was it's an interesting move within the industry, but I'm excited to see where she ends yeah. up. Yeah, no, she has experience in consumer. She she's worked all over J and J, so conceivably, I guess she could move out out of medtech, but certainly her roots lie here. So I hope she she finds a a, a leadership role, a top leadership role at uh, at a larger company. And when Ashley lands that new role, she's got to come on here to Device Talks Weekly and, and tell us about it. I'm sure that'll be her first order of business. I, yes. I think so. Yeah. 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 She should be for sure. <laughs> right. So we've we've provided enough teasing, I think, of the of the issue. How can folks get a hand, get their hands on a copy of Medical Design and Outsourcing if they're not already uh, subscribers? Well, you can go to the Medical Design and Outsourcing website, just medicaldesignandoutsourcing.com. There's a a little tab at the top that says women in medtech in that tab you can find all of the articles that were in the magazine but you can also find a link to the women in medtech magazine so there's a lot of good resources in there you can just see all everything that we've talked about with more detail and see all the visuals as well it's awesome it's been awesome to have you on here you know to talk talk once again about you know the the latest uh, edition of women in medtech and just kind of the state of you know, where we are with with diversity in our industry yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Terry Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's excellent to, to hear Kaijin's uh, story. Uh, you folks have obviously been in the news a lot over the last few years for good reasons during bad times. And I want to get into that story in a moment, but as always, love to learn about our guests. What was the path that led you to work in the healthcare field, in the medical field? I don't think it's a very usual path as far as I'm concerned, because Tom, you might be surprised to hear that I'm not a scientist, Uh, (laughs) but I always wanted to uh, basically try to impact my environment in different things I could be doing. 
either in business or getting involved in politics. I believe that uh, for people who have been lucky enough to um, do things that they consider interesting, to have an interesting job, the notion of uh, giving back is extremely important to me. So after different activities in pure business, consulting, export, living in uh, different countries in Europe and outside of Europe, I was asked to join a diagnostic company 20 years ago. And I know it sounds sometimes a bit ridiculous, but I literally fell in love with diagnostic and the complexity of that business because you need to bring together three different background knowledge technologies, chemistry, instrumentation, and bioinformatics. And then since then, I run different jobs in different diagnostic companies all over the world once again. Europe, North America, Asia Pacific, China. And back in 2015, I joined Kayagen and was very happy to do so. Great. It's interesting that you fell in love with diagnostics. It's always been, I thought, obviously a critical area within medical devices, but often overlooked. People don't really appreciate the impact. At least they they didn't until the last few years. What was it about the, I understand your love of the mechanics behind it, the elements behind it. Did you also have an appreciation with how it sort of entered the market and impacted patients? And did you see a time when we're going to be a a really vital piece of the healthcare system or even a more vital piece of the healthcare system? Well, I believe, unfortunately, because it had killed uh, too many people, but the pandemic, COVID-19, proved at least two things. One is the critical value of diagnostic in the healthcare value chain either in life science or in clinical diagnostic. And second is the accuracy and superiority of molecular diagnostic in the diagnostic value chain. And to your point at the beginning of your question, when you say it's undervalued, there is a very important statistics that had not changed at least for 10 years before the pandemic, which is hospitals in general are spending less than 5% of their budget on diagnostic, any kind of diagnostics, metabolic, infectious diseases, oncology. And yet, we have many publications in peer reviews showing that a diagnostic result in a hospital is impacting at least 70% of the medical decisions taken in that hospital. And so I think what I find interesting here is that I consider that diagnostic is power because it brings different stakeholders, crucial information to take decisions. Obviously, to the clinicians, a clinician will know what to do, when to start an antibiotherapy, for example, or an oncology treatment, adapt and adjust this treatment to the specificity of the patient, but for the patient also. It's a critical knowledge about what kind of further decision they could take after a diagnostic result. That's fascinating. I never heard that number, and that does seem remarkably low, 5%, given that so much of what, so many of the decisions, as you said, are are driven by, by lab tests. They're always waiting for lab tests. They're always waiting for numbers. They're always waiting for information. So that's shocking. So we moved into the COVID conversation a little bit. Could you compare and contrast the diagnostics industry 2019 and prior to where we are today and where we're going? And I understand it, and it's a big question, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, from your unique perch, 
does your job, does Kaijin's role in healthcare look dramatically different than it did in 2019? Or is it, are you staying the course and, and everyone else are the ones that changed? I'm not sure that our role or uh, influence is different, but I think we feel much more probably at Kayagen, and I think in other diagnostic companies, empowered and responsible as well. We have a greater sense of duty, I believe. When you said what has changed, I would say it's a bit of a caricature. I'm a bit simplistic, but yet, before COVID, let's say diagnostic was a matter of a specialist. You know, we don't talk directly to the patient most of the time. You see, the patient is going to see her GP, his GP, prescribe the test, and then they receive a list of statistics that they do not really understand. And they need, obviously, a clinician to uh, go further. Yet, four years after COVID, everybody knows what PCR means now. Everybody knows what uh, an antigen test is. But I believe that instead of thinking, okay, uh, we achieved our goal, uh, our technologies are now very known, it, it, it should give us a greater sense of responsibility and, 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 and what we need to, uh, to do now in the coming years. Second, technologies are going to play an incredible role in the future of diagnostic. Diagnostic technologies are becoming faster and faster. You can provide now a patient with a very accurate result, a molecular technique result in between 20 and, and 30 minutes. And I think uh, soon we will go way below 10 minutes. Second, we can now in only one sample screen and test for at least 20 or more pathogens. Wow mixing inside one sample the screening of viruses, bacteria, or yeast, and you have your results in uh, one hour. The instrumentation that before were very bulky, uh, taking a huge space in the lab, now are the size of your computer laptop. The cartridge is the size of your uh, iPhone, the cartridge which is going to process the result. And most of those solutions now are purely load and go. Basically, you take a sample, you insert the sample, the sample in a cartridge, load the cartridge, and wait for the results. If you combine that tomorrow with the power of bioinformatics and artificial intelligence, then the sky is the limit, obviously, because the power, once again, to extrapolate and understand from many of your results what is actually going on for this patient is phenomenal. Interesting. Gosh, so many questions. <laughs> and I do want to get into AI and, and where we're headed. But I'd like to take a moment and just sort of, I had a conversation with uh, Tom Poland of BD at a recent conference, and he talked about how BD responded during COVID, how they sort of basically marshaled all their troops. They brought some folks in out of retirement to develop diagnostics that could help answer questions for folks. I'd love to get a, a two-minute sense of what Kaijin was like during those days. Was it? I imagine it was a similar all-hands-on-deck sort of experience. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can do that in two minutes. Because okay, take as many so, minutes as you want. <laughs> it, 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 was, uh, it was so fascinating, so motivating, and so humbling. Probably a bit specific to Kaijin, you might know that uh, when the pandemic started, Kaijin was just in a kind of a shaky situation. A CEO of uh, uh, more than 15 years had been changed. 
and the board that asked me to join. We had missed some quarters, you know, that we are publicly listed uh, in two markets in Europe and uh, uh, in the US, but we have missed two quarters in uh, 2019 and uh, on the market, obviously, those are not good results. Obviously, the market reacts quite negatively. And in addition to that, a much bigger company was trying to acquire Kayajet. So, um, I mean, let's say that the morale of the company was pretty low. Uh, and there was uh, uh, still very strong fundamentals. But you see, sometimes people are losing sight of, of their strength and they, they become negative. It is clear that COVID gave a, a new sense of purpose to 6,000 Kayageners and the way they rallied and the way they stepped up to the challenges of this pandemic for me was very humbling. First of all, everybody accepted to come basically uh, seven days a week, 24 hours seven. No question asked. No question asked. In, in the office, you were coming yeah. to work. The, mod- the mobilization, I mean, of, go- of course, I mean, we had to isolate some people for our manufacturing people, obviously, it was clear. It was seven days a week, free shift, 24 hours seven. We had many authorization in many countries to obviously make this possible. But nobody even questioned that they had to come really and put even more hours into KHM. In some activities, we increase or we multiply the output the volume manufactured at Kayagen by more than 50-50 times in less than six months. This is unprecedented, unprecedented. Then the genius at play, you see. At that time, we also decided to fully empower even more than before our people. And suddenly R&D came with 12 new products that were not even imagined before or thought about before. Wow to try to find solutions against COVID. In every dimension, sample technologies, detection of the virus, multiplexing to have more than just the virus, 12 new products in a year. Absolutely amazing. And last but not least for us, what is very important because, you know, obviously many people will consider we are a we are a business. Uh, we are a commercial company. Uh, we are not just a commercial company. Obviously, we need to sell our product to reinvest in R&D. But I strongly believe that before being a business, healthcare is a right. So we took a stance at the beginning of uh, of COVID, which was we leave no one behind, which was meaning Tanzania, for example, it's not less important than United States or the UK or Germany. And so we need to try to deliver to as many people as possible. And remember at that time, I'm talking from February 2020 to at least October 2020 there was not enough test. Everybody now is speaking about the vaccine, which was fantastic. But at that time, there was not enough test. Right. So the way we did collaborate with public authorities, many governments in the, in the world, in Germany, in the US, in France, in the UK, the connection between public and private, the mobilization of people for me was unseen before, clearly. You anticipated my question. I knew you were new to the CEO role, but I was wondering if you could draw a comparison to any sort of similar response in time when, when folks came together like, like that. I tend to believe, you see, Tom, that uh, sometimes you just need to uh, jump into the water even if uh, nobody has taught you to swim, you see? And, <laughs> and, and the more someone is trying to put your head under the water, the more you try, obviously, to go up and take a brief and survive. And this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. If you allow me, I have a very striking example 
Please. Remember that uh, at least for the most part of 2020 and 21, if you would be COVID positive, nobody could visit you in the hospital, not even your family, even right. if you were basically going to potentially die or past. And one day I received a fantastic email from uh, one of our partners and customers said, you know, Thierry, a negative result will show you the power of your tests. And I said, what happened? He said, yesterday we had a patient and it was clear that he would be dying early in the morning, but we didn't know what was his condition. We didn't know whether it was COVID or other respiratory issues. We took a first sample. The results were inconclusive, but I could not rest satisfied with that. So it was 11 p.m. I run back to the office and I run again the sample on your solution, the one that is screening so many respiratory pathogens. And it showed negative for COVID. And he said the power of this is that his family that was forbidden to visit him when he was dying could then go to the hospital and spend the last hour with him because he was COVID negative. And then basically visit were open again. This is also what is extremely mobilizing when you hear that, you see. Sure. You feel that you are impacting somehow. Yeah, no, that that's, I'm, Terry, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I, I think we, we tend to move on in life and I haven't really given much thought to all those folks who have passed, who died alone in hospitals at the time. At the time it seemed necessary and we all thought, we all knew it was necessary. I'm thinking of those relatives now who are living with that knowledge that, that that's how their loved one passed. So certainly a super powerful story. And I'm glad your system was able to provide some relief to that family. We'll walk around at this time period just for another question or two. I'm just curious about, well, two things. You, you, you mentioned that you operated in multiple countries. I can't imagine what it was like trying to manage that many protocols. I mean, many larger medical device companies are multinational. So you're not alone, but how challenging was that? And, and you're located in some areas that I think probably were had some high levels of, uh, of incidents. Well, I mean, it was also a very good description of, of local mindsets. Yeah. And it was quite fascinating. And it's basically public knowledge, so there's nothing confidential here. The French, for example, from the start, they decided to centralize their decision uh, making. They called us the Elysee, uh, uh, the French presidency, they called us. We told them, look, guys, do not speak only with Skyagen. Let us invite the other also diagnostic players. And then immediately they said, it's very simple. You, Skyagen, we want this from you. You, other company, we want that from you. And they centralized the purchase, which was quite useful for us because at least we had some basically visibility on demand. In the US, on the other way around, at the beginning, it was impossible to centralize. And to be very clear, it became very quickly very messy because we had multiple requests from states, from the federal states, from the White House, then from members of Congress. They were trying to help their, their constituents, obviously, and trying to help. And we received many requests and we tried to push for a bit more organization, but it's not. You see, because of antitrust, uh, it's not the mindset here. Right. But at the same time, after some weeks of quite a messy situation, then the American efficiency started to play. And it became extremely efficient. The way, basically, public, once again, authorities and private play together. So 
yes, we had to uh, adjust to different uh, political uh, uh, contexts. We had also to stand a lot of political pressure. It's not easy to say no. When you have an ambassador calling you directly or a prime minister saying, why don't have enough tests for my country? Sir, because we need also to deliver other countries. You're not the only one. It's never easy to say no. But I believe uh, uh, overall, at the end, what was also a very good lesson for the future and for potential preparedness for other pandemics is that without that fantastic collaboration, political, public authorities, private sector, none of this would have happened. Oh, interesting. You are bringing me back to those times. Let's focus on where we are today. And this will be the last COVID-related question because I want to talk about your other businesses and pillars as well. But we're at a time where COVID is surging, but it's, it seems to be a lesser strain. I'm curious, in testing is, is less prevalent than it was, or at least seen as less necessary. How are you incorporating COVID into your current business projections and into your strategy going forward? I imagine you're accounting for fewer tests being required, but things could turn around very quickly. How do you, how do you manage this, such a fluid situation? So even during the pandemic, we quickly realized that this would not last. And what could have been the worst for a, a company like Kayagen, we are a mid-cap, it's a 2 billion company, 6,000 people would have been to load Kayagen with expenses that would be impossible, obviously, to uh, bear after COVID, I would say. So we used a lot of contractors. We used a lot of contractors, people that could basically quickly come back to our manufacturing sites. And basically, uh, they were trained and we were adjusting constantly the level of contractors. We were one of the first companies, if not the first company, to completely decouple our PNL from COVID back in uh, uh, summer of 2021. Because we always said COVID is going to be so volatile that it's mm-hmm. impossible to forecast because nobody knows. Right. And even today, even today, when people are telling you that there is a new variant, the so-called Pirola, that uh, there are cases surging a bit uh, in many geographies, I visit a lot of customers Tom, all over the world. And I ask them, what do you think? What's going to happen? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. What is clear for me is that if they decide to test, they will never decide to test for COVID only. Because let's be honest, if you go to a hospital tomorrow, you are a bit feverish, you're coughing, you don't feel well, you have a bit of fatigue, they don't know. So instead of just testing for COVID, they will probably run a full panel on you of flu, ANB, RSV, COVID, and potentially other pathogens. So at least they are sure, okay? But on COVID itself, we don't basically plan for more tests. We believe that there is a kind of fatigue at the moment in the population. If you look at the latest statements from public health authorities, they acknowledge that there is a rise again of cases, but they say, if you don't feel good, isolate and don't go to work. Some people, again, you have seen that yesterday in Massachusetts, are mandating masks again, but nobody is talking about testing. I'm not saying that more testing is not going to happen, but I'm not saying that it's not going to... Uh, I don't think uh, we should we should bet on that for the future of, of Kayagen. Our core business has always been our priority, and that's the way it is. Now, where we need to spend time, especially with, again, the political and public authority, is to work on preparedness. And this is probably one of the biggest disappointments 
post-COVID, clearly. Disappointment in sort of governments and the public preparing for this? Because I believe that people have a kind of short-term memory. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it's up to us, diagnostic industries, to continue to prove the medical value and the medical impact of what we are bringing to the market. But I must say, uh, after uh, many months, especially uh, at the peak of the pandemic, of uh, discussions where public authorities said, we understood tomorrow we will need to make sure that we are testing more, it has been quickly forgotten. Uh, you see, uh, it is clear also, I was talking with some vaccines professional that uh, some areas in the world, and especially the most needy area, yes, Africa, are not ordering uh, COVID vaccines anymore. Hmm. Uh, something makes me a bit po more positive. For example, you see uh, everybody with COVID understood, for example, the power of wastewater testing yep. to uh, detect very early in a tiny amount of water the emergence or the, the prevalence of a pathogen, COVID or others. But on other dimension, I believe that many states, unfortunately, believe that there will be no pandemic again. And so basically, they are lowering the guard. And I don't think that's the right thing to do. Uh, we are under-investing in uh, genomic testing capacity. If you want to understand the mutation of a variance, you, you need to do genetic testing. We are under-investing. We are always talking about, for example, uh, building inventory for vaccines. You know, the shelf life of the test is most of the time way above a year or sometimes two years. Why don't we talk about that? I'm not trying to... Uh, preach for Kayagen or Farrer. It's just saying, let's make sure that we are not taken by surprise next time because there will be a next time. Viruses, no, no borders, you see? Uh, so there will be a next time, obviously. That's a great point. What, so what does future of testing look like? Well, we're entering respiratory season. As you mentioned, folks aren't doing one-off tests anymore. Are you preparing for a future where people are going to be able to, to test from multiple variations at home? Are you looking more to provide these tests to the clinical setting? What does the future of diagnostic testing look like in this regard? Well, if you refer to Kayagen, Kayagen has a very, very uh, key uh, uh, stance on, on home testing. We are not saying that uh, we shouldn't have home testing. Stay careful because... We always prefer to see a test perform where there is a clinician to then guide the patient. And I have very uh, a clear uh, example for that. Imagine that you really have to work, Tom, every day and go to work. And then you have the ability to uh, test for COVID at home, but you know that you really have to work. You need to feed your family. If you are positive, what you are going to do? Are you going to stay home and isolate? and? Uh, uh, question open you see there are some home tests for hiv for example some of them are rather decent quality but there is such still it's a pity but that's the way it is such a social stain on hiv as an infectious disease for example that if you are doing a home test on hiv you're positive and nobody sees that what are you going to do are you going to report it i don't know question so i always prefer that there is a clinician nearby to basically make sure that uh, the patient is going to be uh, guided and, and taken care of. For the future, I believe, especially for a company like Kayagen, in home collection. It's clear that if tomorrow we can uh, avoid a visit to the lab for you, we should do that. And so uh, 
the ability to send you very easy uh, to use devices to do the sample yourself. I see. Mm -hmm. And then send it. That's something where, obviously, we are investing. Let's not forget also, uh, Tom, that many tests that could not happen during COVID because so much priorities put on COVID now are coming back. You see, people are going back to their clinicians. Uh, and obviously, we know that probably too many oncology testing have been postponed. And, and I hope that there will be no negative impact. But people now are back on their, uh, let's say, uh, typical oncology screening. Uh, another example, TB testing. Mm. You see tuberculosis. Uh, for many people in the West, whether it is in Europe or in the U.S., TB is a gone disease, uh, not at all. Right. And you have seen recently, we have new cases of tuberculosis in the US. I mean, tuberculosis is still killing 2 million people per year. Wow. Because of COVID, none of the commitment taken by states from the US to Germany, to France, to the UK, all over the world, in favor of spending money to fight against TB, none of those commitments because of COVID has been achieved over the last two years. Hmm. We need to uh, bring those tests back, you see. So I am not concerned for the level of testing. I mean, uh, uh, this is a very dynamic market. It will continue to grow probably 5 to 6% per year. The technology is helping a lot once again. You see uh, uh, the emergence of uh, personalized medicine. The fact that you and I we can have exactly the same cancer, exactly the same mutation. Yet, with a few tests, we will see that you will answer positively to a given compound drug or chemotherapy where I will not answer or I will even develop side effects. It's a fantastic innovation. The fact there is a hot topic that is uh, extremely fascinating in, uh, in oncology, at least two for the future, liquid biopsy. The fact that we can now detect circulating tumor basically in the blood, even far away from the initial site of the tumor. Fantastic. Minimal residual diseases. You see, uh, there are many diseases, like, for example, multiple myeloma, lymphoma, for example, where for your clinician to be able to test if you still have trace of tumor cells is key as an information. For some years ago, it was not even imagined. And now they can decide to simply stop a treatment, a chemotherapy, a radiotherapy, because they have that information. You do not have any more minimal residual disease. Fantastic information. So technology will continue to push that market to grow. So what does Kyogen look like going forward? We spent a lot of time talking about infectious diseases and still, I think, somewhat therapeutic to kind of go over the, that time and to understand different perspectives. But going forward, you mentioned precision med medicine earlier on. You talked about the power of artificial intelligence. What does Kyogen as a company look like five years from now? What are going to be your, your growth areas? What's going to be a bigger part of your business? What's the future for Kyogen? So first of all, it's going to be, and it's a very good specificity, it's going to still be a company which is paying a lot of attention and investment on sample preparation. Remember, Tom, that we are a molecular diagnostic company. We work with DNA, RNA, protein, the ability to extract and purify the nucleic acid in any given sample is key. And too many companies forget that because it's the beginning 
of any test, if you miss that step, you miss your run. And so uh, we were a pioneer in fully standardizing and automating sample prep, extraction and purification of nucleic acid, this will continue. You know, Tom, there is a very important day at this time of the year, very soon at Kayagen. It's when they give the uh, uh, Nobel Prizes, for example, chemistry, medicine, biology, uh, you name it. That day, there is a race at Kayagen. Who will find the first picture of the winner with a Kayagen blue box or red box behind her or behind him? And it's a hit 100% of the time, which is showing you, which is showing you that we are in every laboratory for this. Everybody knows us. There is no PhD, no student in biology who has not been working with our solution. And then we will continue to focus mainly in three therapeutic areas, infectious diseases, oncology, and what we call immune response, which is the ability to monitor the evolution of your T cell or B cell answers when you have an infection. So this is for the focus. We will remain a company both investing in life science, both investing in clinical diagnostic because the ability to be very one-to-one -one with academic labs, with researchers is a condition for innovation in the future. If we wouldn't be in life science, we would have done, we wouldn't have developed solution, for example, for microbiome testing. 10 years ago, nobody was talking about microbiome. Now it's becoming something more and more relevant. Plant testing, soil analysis. This is thanks to our life science. And then we need to transfer that knowledge into the clinical use, make it affordable for the patient and relevant for the patient. But as we are a mid-cap, it will be, obviously, with focus, oncology, infectious diseases, immune response. There is no doubt that we will continue to be more and more global in our uh, future. Having local manufacturing and R&D sites is going to be a must. It's a must in China already, but it's not going to be in China only in the future. I believe that India will ask for the same. Many emerging countries, Brazil potentially will ask for the same. Third, a lot of uh, key success for the future will come from bioinformatics and uh, artificial intelligence. We want to be the digital diagnostic company. We have more than 150 people already working in digitization of our uh, uh, activities, marketing, sales, but also manufacturing and R&D. Tomorrow, I see artificial intelligence between the fantastic tool to bring together results from in vitro diagnostic together with results from imaging. And then obviously the potential for the patient is absolutely once again phenomenal. Last but not least, I know it's a long answer. We still want to spend attention, money, focus on public health because once again, of course, we need to have commercial performance, but healthcare is a right and access to quality medical value diagnostic is not just reserved for Americans, for Europeans. It's for the worldwide population. Great point. I want to end there, but I just have a quick follow-up question because I'm fascinated by your move into the home. You're, you're, you're collecting samples at home and having them sent back. That would seem to open up kind of a whole new channel for you if you're engaging people in their homes. What could that lead to for Kyogen in the future? Is it is it merely sample collection or do you see that as sort of a new portal 
and a new way for you to engage the patient directly? No, I believe that it's basically, uh, I would like to focus that on sample collection. Yep. Let's play where we are very relevant and good. Let's not try to go everywhere. You see, okay. I, I gave you my point on home testing. <laughs> home collection yeah. is our, uh, is our uh, basically uh, territory. I think we need to increase the medical communications towards the patient. It's our duty as well to come up with uh, campaigns that are targeting the patient, not just the laboratories, to explain the value of some biomarkers, why they make sense, why they make sense. We are living in a world where, for many reasons, patients will take more and more ownership of their health. First of all, because the population is aging, so they want to know, obviously. Yep. Many diseases are becoming chronic. HIV is a chronic disease. Some cancer might become chronic, as you know. And so uh, the time people spend on uh, healthcare sites on the web is, is, is incredible as well. And so we need to feed them with information. But once again, I insist, it's much better when there is a clinician nearby to also basically uh, guide the patient. So uh, we are not going to bypass the laboratories, but there will be multiple kinds of laboratories. Mm -hmm. You can have testing at an airport, yep. for example. You can have testing uh, uh, in a retail clinic like uh, a Walgreens in the US, you see. But mega labs like uh, the LabCorp and the Quest of the World will continue to exist, obviously, because you are also looking for efficiency. And so this comes for, for with volumes. Excellent. Well, Thierry, thank you very much for the time and for the look back to where Kaijin was and how it dealt with COVID, but more importantly, where you're headed in the future. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. And again, thanks for your interest on Kaijin. Thanks a lot, Tom. Have a very good day. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Uh, Danielle Kirsch, we told folks how to find the, uh, the Women in MedTech issue of Medical Design and Outsourcing. But uh, how can folks find you out there on the, on the internets? I'm on LinkedIn at Danielle Kirsch, K-I-R-S-H, and I do have a call to action this time. If you are an expert at de novo classifications, FDA de novo classifications, a consultant and a regulatory expert, or even a company that went went through the de novo process, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm interested in learning more. Fantastic. All right, Chris. We're, I recall you have some interesting data around that that you've pulled, and that's all I'll tease about it, but... Um... No spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, how can folks find you out there? Hey, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, like a uh, new marker. Um, I mean, I suppose you could get a carrier pigeon to drop a note for me, uh, you know, somewhere around, uh, you know, outside the Twin Cities. But, you know, definitely LinkedIn's the best, best way to reach me. Fantastic. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. And uh, folks, we'd love you to share this episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast on LinkedIn. And when you do, please uh, please tag Chris, Danielle, and myself so we can follow that conversation. And uh, to receive future episodes of the Device Talks weekly podcast, Chris, what do we need folks to do? You got to like, follow, subscribe. That's right. Like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network. You'll get future episodes of the Device Talks weekly uh, intuitive Talks, which we've talked a lot about today, the Intuitive, the Surgical Robotics Company, uh, Striker Talks, Abbott Talks, Boston Scientific Talks are all will be sent directly to your listening device. And uh, I don't have a conference to uh, to direct you to right now, but we'll be in Boston on May 1st and 2nd. That's all I'll say. 
working on that agenda right now. If anyone is listening, wants to be involved, certainly uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know what you're up to. All right. Uh, well, Danielle, thanks again for for joining us on the podcast. And oh, uh, we should plug your your podcast, please. Tune in to the Mass Device Fast Five every Tuesday through Friday with me and my co-host, Sean Hooley. We will tell you all the top news that you need to know for the day. And Chris, what do people need to do to, to get episodes of the Fast Five? Oh, you can just uh, you know check out Mass Device Daily. Um, you know D- Danielle has a like quick summary article of the of the podcast and the place where you can uh, play the audio. And it's gosh, it's available on you know SoundCloud, Apple, Apple iTunes, and much much more. So. And what do we need people to do to the Fast Five podcast, Chris? You know they've got to like, there you follow, go. subscribe <laughs> to it. Exactly. Got to like, follow, subscribe, and. Absolutely. No, it's a great addition to the to the group. And it's not part of the Device Talks Podcast Network. It is its own channel. And the name of the uh, the channel, it's the Mass Device Fast Five channel? Yep, Mass Device Fast Five. All right, great. So folks should like, follow, and or subscribe to that as well. All right. Well, thanks again, Danielle, for, uh, for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Chris Newmarker, why don't you uh, give... Bid, bid, bid our listeners farewell. Hey, have a great weekend, everybody, and uh, enjoy Halloween.